Chapter 13, Part 1 of Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Molehill Mountain. Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages, by Jack Adams. Chapter 13, Part 1. Bonadilla. As I listened to Nirvana's description of the financial and commercial system which had once existed in Alturia, I could not help but notice its close similarity to the system which prevailed in the outer world. As he elucidated the international and seemingly unlimited power that had been exercised by the owners of gold, and how it would take all the gold in the world to pay a small fraction of the annual interest on the obligations held against the people, my heart sank within me at the utter hopelessness of their condition. I was expecting to hear that the people in their desperation had blotted this power from the earth with fire and sword, but the speaker finished with merely a description of a more equitable system of transacting business. Just as he had come to this most interesting place in the discussion, the institute closed and took a recess for dinner and McNair began to introduce us to the superintendents of many of the large educational institutions of the country who were members. As we were leaving the hall, Aqua joined us, accompanied by a magnificent-looking woman who she introduced to me as Bonadilla, the superintendent of the matron's home at Lake Biblis, saying, My dear Nequa, I want you to learn that in Alturia we commence the education of children before they are born. This is what these matrons' homes are established for and Bonadilla is superintendent of one of the oldest, largest, and most thoroughly equipped institutions of this kind in the world. I want you to make her acquaintance, and I doubt not that you will become fast friends. I am indeed glad to meet you, I said, as I want to learn all that I can about these, to me, strange educational institutions. And I, said Bonadilla, shall be happy to give you any information in my power." Aqua informs me that you are preparing a book descriptive of our civilization, and I am much interested, as an Alturian, in what it may present to the people of the outer world. Yes, I said, and by all means, I wanted to contain a review of these matrons' homes, and all that can be learned in regard to their origin and the good they are designed to accomplish for humanity. That, indeed, said Bonadilla, would constitute a most important volume in a series— but it should not be the first one in a thorough treatment of the evolutionary forces which work for the development of the race toward higher and better conditions. Then, I said, would you have me ignore this, to me, most singular system of commencing the education of children before they are born? There is nothing singular about the system, said Bonadilla. Even the savages of the olden time did the same thing, but they did not know it. The mothers were surrounded by the conditions of savagery, and their children were born predisposed to become savages. These prenatal influences are in fact the commencing point in the education of every child that is born, as they predispose the child to a life of usefulness, or the reverse, according to the character of the influences. The object which our matrons' homes are designed to accomplish is to provide the best possible conditions to start the child with a strong, healthy body and mind with a kindly disposition and elevated aspirations toward the highest possible intellectual and moral development. If such results, I said, can be secured by the establishment of these homes, you certainly would not dissuade me from an exhaustive review of the entire question. Certainly not, she said. 
but as a teacher of your people i would have you follow the natural law and begin your work at the beginning from what i can learn your own country is now passing through its transition period similar to that described in Narena's lecture and hence the first great duty of your people is to abolish poverty when the fear of want is removed from every household the first effect will be to place better prenatal conditions around the mothers and the next generation will be placed on a higher plane physically intellectually and morally this is the first step that your people must take and then the home may be introduced for the scientific adaptation of prenatal influences to specific purposes then you will begin to determine in advance whether the child shall be an inventor scientist philosopher poet musician teacher or explorer the homes are scientifically adapted to specific purposes while economic independence and general education lift the entire people to a higher plane of being along every line of human effort what your people need now is the general mental and moral uplifting of the victims of your present system and to this end my advice to you would be to confine your first work to the solution of the problem how to abolish poverty but would you i asked discourage these specific measures at this time because the masses are poor of course not said bonadea for those who are able to apply them but i would first place these advanced scientific methods within the reach of the entire people by establishing economic independence for all this is simply following the natural law of human development will you i asked please explain just what you regard as the natural law of human development it is the law of growth said bonadilla and always begins at the base and works its way upward the plant germinates in the earth and then pushes its way upward toward the light the growth of the animal organism from conception to maturity is along the same line of progression from the bottom of the scale toward the top in the growth of human civilization and the mental moral and spiritual elevation of the race the same general law of evolution holds good the elevating influence must reach the people through their environments the real man and the real woman is the ego or spirit the physical body is the outermost environment of the individual being by improving the physical conditions we stimulate the mental organism into a healthy activity and the result is intellectual growth and spiritual unfoldment such is the natural law of human progress from the physical through the mental to its culmination in the spiritual or divine which is the very highest type to which we aspire this i said looks like a concise and logical statement of the natural law but how do you apply it to the present conditions which exist in my own country we have a civilization and many very intelligent well-meaning and well-to-do people who might be greatly benefited by a better understanding of the influences of prenatal conditions doubtless that is true she replied but your duty as a teacher is to take the whole people into consideration and not apart and in your work for their enlightenment begin at the bottom of the scale your present civilization was developed along the lines of unconscious growth just as the child grows from birth to maturity but your work as a teacher and civilizer is to work along conscious lines and lay your plans with due deliberation having as it were reached the top you are able to give instruction to those who are lower down and help them to climb higher the place of the teacher is one which demands that you should understand the natural law of growth so that you may work to the best advantage hence your work is to begin with the outer environment the physical 
and that which pertains to the higher will take care of itself. It is not the whole, but the sick, who need the physician, so it is not the wise, but the ignorant, who need the teacher. For these reasons I advise you to confine your present work more to the economic, as that would prepare the field for the higher, and that, just where it is most needed, among the poor. I think I comprehend your meaning, I said, and shall act accordingly in the preparation of my first volume on Alturian civilization. Aqua's advice is very similar, but situated as I am here, these numerous lines of thought press in upon me all at once, and there is so much to learn that I often find it difficult to make a selection. I am sure that the people of my own native land are passing through their transition period, and I am anxious to give them that which will do them the most good. Then, interposed Norena, who had joined us, show them how to get rid of poverty. Without economic independence, political independence and personal liberty under the law are a hollow mockery. There can be no progress without freedom, and there can be no freedom as long as people are driven to their work by the stern lash of necessity. But how is it, I asked, that you have such a realizing sense of the horrors of poverty when you have always had an abundance? Because it is the one great object, said Norena, of our educational training and of our Alturian civilization to provide against want and to relieve distress wherever found. Every student in our schools is required to make a careful study of our transition period, the helpless, hopeless condition of the poverty-stricken masses and the methods by which they got out, and which must be continued in order to stay out. But why, I asked, do you now, after centuries of abundance, still make these lessons so prominent in your educational system? Because, said Norena, we are still on the physical plane, and if we do not guard against them by every means in our power, these physical evils may again overtake us. We know for a fact that eternal vigilance is the price that we must pay for the preservation of our present blessings. But, constituted as your people are, I said, with their readiness to relieve distress under all circumstances, I should think that you have no cause to fear a return of the old systems of oppression. Certainly not said Norena, so far as this generation is concerned, but should we neglect the education of the rising generation in regard to these matters, we would begin to go back toward those conditions. There is no danger so long as we do our duty as educators and keep alive the finer sensibilities of the soul. We did not reach our present condition at one bound, and if we were to go back, it would not be all at once. But it is the duty of our teachers to see that we do not take a single step backwards. Hence, we educate. We had now reached the Department of Public Comfort, where we were making our home during our stay in Orbitello. After dinner, Battelle informed us that he intended to start within an hour to Lake Biblis, and that before he left he desired to have some definite understanding as to our plans for future work. Then, said Norena, you had better join me in my rooms and talk the matter over. I feel deeply interested in your plans for opening communication with the outer world. So, if it is agreeable, come with me. We accepted the invitation, and were soon discussing what was now the leading thought in our minds, the improvement of the airships with a view to forming a connection between the inner and the outer worlds. Battelle explained his plans for constructing a ship that could be moved in any direction, the power to be applied instantaneously, so as to be able to meet all the contingencies of a storm and contending currents of air. Then plans were discussed for protecting the occupants from intense cold. For this purpose, I had plans of my own which I did not divulge, 
Several ways were proposed for making the vessel proof against cold, but I saw at a glance that with all of them the freezing moisture on the inside would so obstruct the vision as to very materially interfere with the proper guidance of the vessel. Before I left, said Battle, I gave plans and specifications for an entirely new ship that I want you to test in a storm, if you can find one, and report as soon as possible. Captain Gannot has agreed to go with me and assist in its completion. As soon as it is ready, I will let you know. Will you come to Lake Biblis and start from there, or shall I send it to some other point? What will be your address? I have made no arrangements for the future, I said, that will in the least interfere with the proposed trial trip to the southern verge. I think, however, I had better remain here a few days, as there are some questions that I want to study, and to that end I shall take a look through the Museum of Universal History. Well, get your book ready, said Battle, and we will find the means to send it where it will do the most good. I have sufficient material already, I said, for a number of books, but the question now is, how much, out of the great abundance, shall I select to go with an account of our discoveries? Well, I should think, said Battle, that you could not send a very large proportion of what you can find in a single one of these exhibits, to say nothing of the libraries, but do your best. I have work that must be completed in order to make yours available, so good-bye, and may success attend you. Captain Guineau, McNair, and Iola accompanied Battle to Lake Biblis, and Narena, Aqua, and myself went to the museum. This was a most magnificent structure, situated on the river, on a point of land where the river leaves Orbitello and makes a sharp turn toward the east. The building was a hexagon, about six hundred feet in diameter, and the foundation had been excavated down to the level of the water, which gave one half of the building the appearance of extending out into the river. In the center of the building was an inlet for boats, for which there was a spacious landing, enclosed by broad marble steps on three sides. At the center, in each of the six corners, was an elevator which connected with each floor. Around what may be regarded as the main building was a broad extension in the form of an inclined floor that communicated at frequent intervals with the several stories, either on the level of the floor or by easy flights of steps. On the periphery of this inclined spiral floor was a railing. The whole of the external structure was supported by massive and highly ornamented columns of aluminum which reflected the light like burnished silver. In the center, and supported from above, was a double-track electric tramway, with cars moving each way at short intervals. This arrangement gave the entire floor space to pedestrians and those using electric chairs and other small vehicles. The lower stories of this immense building, up to the level of the bluff, contained supplies of all kinds, required by those engaged in river transportation. The upper stories of the building were devoted to the preservation of relics and records commemorative of past civilizations and taken altogether, presented to the eye a complete history of man's progressive development along every line from the earliest period of recorded history. This wonderful exhibit enabled the student to trace, by means of practical illustrations, the progress of the mechanical arts, from the original crude contrivances to the present high state of development under which drudgery was unknown, and the people were in the full enjoyment of all the comforts of life with a minimum of labor. It is no part of my intention to attempt to give more than the most cursory mention of this wonderful exhibition of industrial progress. One feature, however, impressed me most, and that was the striking similarity of these exhibits to the much smaller ones which I had visited in the outer world. 
the methods which had prevailed in the different stages of civilization were almost identical with those prevailing in the corresponding stage of outer-world development in watercraft for instance the raft of logs bound together with thongs and propelled by poles came first followed by canoes hollowed out of logs then smaller boats with oars and growing in dimensions until they assumed the shape of roman galleys and the ships of the northmen then sails were introduced and later steams became the motor power so of the methods of land transportation the sledge and ox-cart were followed in time by the stage-coach this by the electric car and last came the airship i asked norena to explain this remarkable similarity this said he only indicates that human development along every line of progress is determined by the constitution of the human mind knowing this we have the key which explains all the mysteries connected with the progress of the race from lower to higher conditions at every step it has been met by similar difficulties and hence the methods of overwhelming these difficulties have been similar because all have alike possessed the same mental constitution this progress up to a certain point has been along unconscious lines and the average man and woman had no clear understanding of the influences which were impelling them forward in every age in every condition of life man has been building in the direction of his ideals but never reaching them in his primitive state he felt the need of some means of crossing streams and having observed that wood floated upon the water he constructed a raft from this he formed the plan of a boat and constructed a canoe as he improved in the direction of his ideals these ideals became more exalted and to-day we have the magnificent electric yacht so it has been in every department of human effort the higher the ideals which have been formed in the mind of man the higher he has climbed in the scale of development this is the fundamental law of human progress every one of these relics of past ages was at first an ideal that had been formed in the human mind before it was realized a thought strikes me i exclaimed if all these ideals have been realized is it not a promise or a prophecy that our ideals to-day will be realized in the future and if from the constitution of the human mind we could presage the ideals of the future we could in a general way predict what the civilization of distant ages will develop certainly said nirvana your thought is strictly philosophical and applied to our immediate future it gives an infallible rule for presaging events where we are familiar with the forces impelling in a certain direction if we can ascertain where we are to-day on any given line of progress we can safely predict what the next step will be on the same line for all things are possible to the human mind in its ultimate stage of development there is no such thing as actually turning back in the path of progress much as man may seem to retrograde at times the lessons taught by these seeming failures are essential elements in his still greater development further on nothing that is useful can be permanently lost to the race what we are inclined to call evil is fleeting and fades away while the good the true and really valuable is immortal hence human progress toward higher and better conditions as applied to the race and long periods of time must ever be onward and upward toward the infinite good i have always i said been deeply interested in everything pertaining to the progress of the race but i have been inclined to regard it as somewhat a matter of chance you seem to have reduced it to an exact science i can understand how certain influences are necessary toward improvement but how is it that our elevation is assured when so many are unconscious of such a tendency 
and in the outer world at least, multitudes seem to be bent upon getting lower instead of higher in the scale. I feel quite sure that the masses of our ancestors in the past were no better than the masses now, and did not consciously cooperate with nature for their own improvement. It seems, however, that by some kind of blind chance they may have contributed something. But it certainly was not intentional. I see a different influence working here, and the people are evidently cooperating with nature for the good of all, but I fear that it will be a long time before the people of my own country will reach that stage of development. Do not be discouraged, said Nirvana. The constitution of the human mind is a guarantee of human elevation. The history of human development presents two distinct stages, the unconscious and the conscious. All progress from the simple cell to the human being is of course unconscious and is governed by fixed and immutable laws. These same laws control human development up to the point where knowledge enables the race to consciously participate in the work of its own elevation. As soon as the people are sufficiently developed to understand the operation of the laws which control their own unfoldment, they will enter upon an epoch of conscious progress by careful and well-concerted measures. When at the close of the transition period, our people reached that stage, the change for the better in every direction came suddenly upon the world, because the masses of mankind felt the need for something better. Unconscious development had prepared them for the wonderful change. The blind forces, which had been slowly urging man upward toward a higher plane of existence, now had the aid of careful and well-devised methods, and the long ages of darkness disappeared in the blaze of light which was let in upon the world. And from this, I said, am I to infer that you think America is ready for such an uplifting of the masses? Your description this forenoon of the transition period of this country would pass as an accurate delineation of the present condition in my own. The belief is widespread among thoughtful people in the United States that our country is on the eve of some great change. Persons of an optimistic turn of mind believe that we are near the beginning of a higher, nobler, and purer civilization than the people have enjoyed before. While the pessimistic are equally sure that we are destined to go backward toward barbarism. I want so very much to be able to disseminate the light that will dispel this darkness from our future. I think, said Nirena, that you have no cause for alarm. From what I can learn, the optimists in your country are largely in the majority, and a general expectation of something better for humanity is a powerful psychic force to produce something better. If your people earnestly desire better things for the masses and at the same time believe that better things are in store for them, your future is most hopeful, as the people cannot fail to find out how to attain the object they are seeking. Thank you, I said. But where is the light, and what can I do to shed it broadcast among them? The light, said Nirena, is latent in every human soul, and is manifest in the readiness with which all classes of people render assistance to those who are placed in peril or are suffering from some great affliction. This is the light that is manifested in your charitable institutions and public hospitals for the relief of the poor and physically infirm. When those who provide these institutions for the relief of suffering humanity learn how the sufferings which now appeal to their sympathies can be avoided, this latent light will be developed into a flame that will enlighten the whole earth and the darkness will disappear as if by magic. But this, I said, does not tell me how that latent light can be developed into such a flame. Human sympathy has always existed, but as yet in the outer world it has not succeeded in removing the suffering which appeals to our sympathies. 
by what means can this be accomplished? By the discovery and application of the principles of equity in all of our relations toward each other, said Narena. To assist you in this, I suggest that we take a look through this museum. In the relics of past ages, which you find here, you can trace the operations of the fundamental laws of human progress. On this floor, you have the works of man in his lowest condition. On the floor above, you find relics of a higher civilization. These have been classified as nearly as possible in their natural order, from the lowest to the highest, with a view to teaching the progressive development of the race in the most effective manner. I realize the importance, I said, of such a collection to every student, but all this comes before your transition period, and I do not see its bearings upon the great problem of the present day in my own country. How to secure the same conditions which I find prevailing here? As yet, said Narena, you have only seen the relics of barbarism. The museum is twenty stories high above the level of the bluff on which it stands, and each story bears its record of the onward and upward progress of the race. The first were erected soon after the transition period, but others have been added since that time to make room for the evidences of our progress. We will now ascend to the one devoted to the transition period. We stepped upon the elevator, and in a moment more were ushered into one of the upper stories, and I found myself confronted by a display such as would characterize a first-class exposition of the present day in the United States. With this difference, however, it represented the poverty and misery of the hovel as faithfully as it did the grandeur of the palace. Everything seemed familiar, and I felt as if I had been suddenly transported to New York or London. Every feature of the competitive system of production and distribution was appropriately illustrated, together with the inevitable consequences to the people. Wealth beyond the dreams of avarice for a favored few, and hopeless poverty and degradation for the many. The clothing of the workmen, in contrast with the gorgeous apparel of the fashionable bon ton, the furnishings of the hovels of the poor and the mansions of the rich placed side by side, the coarse and homely fare of the wealth producer compared with the dainty viands of the non-producer, all told more plainly than words the story of undeserved poverty and, in millions of cases, the abject want and misery of the most useful classes in society in striking contrast with the unearned abundance of the idle, and for all practical purposes the useless rich. The manner in which the wealth created by the toiling millions passed through the channels of trade into the possession of a few wealthy speculators was illustrated by pictures and printed explanations, in most endless variety, so that even the most obtuse observers could not fail to get a clear idea of the practical workings of a system of commercial exchange, under the operation of which interest, profit, and rent were always added to the market price of the product every time it changed hands. One of these illustrations was entitled Thirteen Usuries on One Hog. It represented a hog passing from the farmer at one end of a long bridge to the workman at the other. From the time the hog starts from the producer on the farm until it reaches its destination in the workshop of the consumer, its size, price, has become colossal. In exchange for the hog, a plow starts from the top of the farm, and the size, price, increases in the same proportion. Every time any commodity passed one of the commercial toll gates established between the producer and the consumer, the price was increased for the benefit of speculators who contributed nothing to its value. All this was, of course, to the manifest loss of the producers. The long bridge was labeled the profit system. 
in contrast with this was a short bridge labeled equity over which products were passing both ways from the producer to the consumer without changing size over this equity bridge the product passed directly from the producer to the consumer by the shortest practicable route and was only handled one time over the profit bridge goods became shelf-worn and deteriorated in value by the frequent changing of hands these two bridges profit and equity were given as symbolical representations of the cause and cure of poverty there was no mistaking the lessons taught by them neither could there be a doubt of their truth under the profit system of exchange the managers are self-employed and it is legitimate that they should have a profit for the service rendered and the larger the profit the larger the number who can make a living out of it under equity the managers are employed by their customers and it is to their interest to see that the business of exchange is carried on with the smallest possible amount of work in handling the product hence the profit system necessarily entails poverty upon the masses who have no interest in the exchange while equity secures abundance because the exchange is effected by their own agents at the least possible expense hence under equity the product passes from the producer to the consumer without changing size and the cost is fixed by the amount of labor expended in its production superintendence and transportation and all parties to the transaction get the exact value of their services but under this system there is nothing for the money king the profit monger and the landlord end of chapter thirteen part one